Okay. Um, we've been looking at Romans 8, 31 and following. This is just a, pa- a section of scripture that is just loaded with promises. And um, we've looked at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, verse 34, uh, which is one that uh, we want to look at tonight, um, or verse 33 and 34, because they deal with a moral issue. Um, verse 32 uh, deals more with logistics. Um, verse 33 and verse 34 uh, deal with moral peace of acceptance. And um, so in verse 33, it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And that anchors assurance and anchors justification and anchors righteousness in, in God, not on some human accuser. Who is he the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. And what that does, that frees people up to come to God uh, directly. And that, that verse 33 and verse 34 um, are, are passages of potential sources of, of promise. And I think that that's where you um, want to look at those verses and kind of tuck them away as, uh, as tools. Um, because when you'll, you'll encounter these situations in life where you are, um, you know what you've done is right, but you're taking a lot of flack for it. And uh, imagine Ashcroft felt like this um, and during the hearings. Um, I, had to, I was amused coming home tonight in the car, listening to the news reports and listening to the words of a, a senator of a neighboring state, uh, well known on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who, who said, um, I want to make it emphatically clear that our opposition to Ashcroft has nothing to do with his religious beliefs. We're concerned with the issues and the positions he takes. Hello? Now, how does the second sentence blend with the first one? Obviously, you could only seriously, if you think about it, if you think about that sentence, the only way that that would make sense if a, if a hidden assumption were surfaced. Anybody sense? If, if you can say it, you're not against so-and-so because of his religious beliefs, you're just against so-and-so because of his positions. Now, that must mean that his religious beliefs have nothing to do with his positions. And, of course, that itself is a religious position. It's defining what religious belief is and what religious belief ought to do. Very interesting. But anyway, get back to the subject here as our introduction. Um, We've been introducing each Thursday night a promise from Scripture just for drill. And uh, verses uh, 33 and 34 of Romans 8 is one of those rich lobes in the Scriptures that you need to memorize and get hold of some of these promises. Now, you only, you know, if you have three or four of them tucked away, these are the useful kind of things. And so this one, verses 33 and 34, is useful in times when you are being accused of something 
that you are clear scripturally before the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean illegitimately using verse 33 and 34 to justify when you're wrong. What it is saying, however, is when you know you're right and you've checked it out by the Scripture and you, you get continual flack, what a neat verse to remember. What, what, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. I live my life before the Lord. And the issue isn't whether you like it or not. The issue is whether the Lord likes it or not. And it's sometimes necessary to say that. Okay, well, that's the promise for tonight. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll start with a lesson. Father, we thank you again uh, tonight that you have preserved down through the corridors of time your infallible scripture, that you've endued the church with the indwelling Holy Spirit through whom you teach the scripture. For the Holy Spirit was the author of scripture. The Holy Spirit is also the teacher of scripture. And it is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit can work in our lives. And we give thanks in His name. Amen. Now tonight, um, we're going to continue in the notes. Um, Carol, if you'd take the notes over there too. Um, we're going to work with... Um, uh, dispensational theology, and again, to, by way of introduction, so we know why we're doing all this, is we've looked at the New Testament events. And the first event that we've had is the session. That's the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. And we spent weeks on the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. And we're coming to the next event in the New Testament, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And from that, we're going to develop the, the role of the church as it goes on. But in order to do that, the moment we start doing this, uh, you've already seen some problems right here in the session. Because if you are of one theological persuasion, you're going to see that session of Jesus Christ in a certain way. If you're of the other theological persuasion, you're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting at the Father's right hand, is not a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to David. And in order to interpret these things, I want to give you this background. So this appendix deals with the fact that there are two ways of looking at Scripture, the classic Reformed position and the dispensational position. Most people don't really know the difference between these two. And it's not that they're enemies in the sense that both are, you know, one's anti-Christian or something. It's just that in the Reformed theology, in most Reformed theology, we are dealing with 16th and 17th century creeds that were formulated in the days when Protestants were fighting Catholics for turf in Europe. And the center of the argument was in the area of salvation, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So, on page 9 of the notes, look at the second paragraph and you'll see where I say, to sum up, that sums up the last two or three Thursday nights we've been together, Reformed theology, utilizing the concept of a covenant, 
structure behind history not only has frozen the 16th and 17th century level of theology into permanent creeds, but has also established its own unique rules of Bible interpretation. It therefore centers upon soteriology, the doctrine that was central to the Reformation, and a very close relationship between the state and the church. Keep in mind, for example, the Reformed Church in Holland, in uh, Switzerland, in Germany, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church in England, the church, church state. It views with deep suspicion any further extension of sola scriptura principle in reforming theology. So, what we're saying is that dispensationalism simply carries the Protestant Reformation forward one more step into the area of eschatology. So tonight, beginning on page 9, we're going to look at this thing called dispensational theology and we're going to look at biblical covenants in the Old Testament. We'll get to the scriptures in just a moment, but I want to give you some background first. Again, if you'll follow me in the notes, there's some points to make in these notes that I, I want to be clear on. And again, if you have questions at the end, if, if you'll ask me those questions, because I, I want you to see certain things. Dispensationalism developed within Protestant circles after Reformation theology had come to dominate Europe. Reformed attempts at political dominion had resulted in less than admirable spiritual condition of the churches. New questions in the 18th and 19th, so you can see there's a date difference, isn't there? The Reformed theologians come out of a 16th and 17th century milieu. Dispensationalism comes out of an 18th and 19th century milieu. They focused on other areas than salvation or soteriology. In spite of the different theological focal points, however, history clearly shows that dispensations arose within Calvinist circles. Now, this grates on the mind of some strict reform people, but it's a matter of historical fact that the dispensationalist teachers were all Calvinist persuasion. I mean, even to this day, I mean, he's 91 years old, but John Walvoord uh, is a Presbyterian who holds to a covenant of grace. So, I mean, come on. Uh, the guy who start, who's basically the lead driver behind Dallas Seminary, which is the lead seminary in the world, is a Presbyterian Calvinist. Dr. Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, was a Presbyterian Calvinist. So, the point is that it's false to argue that dispensationalism is some sort of something came out of the woods someplace. No, it didn't. It came right out of the center of Reformed community. Okay. Reformational directions. Now, here is where the issues were in the 18th and 19th century that spawned dispensationalism. And remember, all this is going to, to understand how we interpret the session in Pentecost. Okay, dispensationalism started over some issues that faced the church. Remember, in church history, every advance in Bible doctrine in church history has always been because the church got in a mess. Church would never have clarified who the person of Jesus Christ was had there not been heretics running around denying his humanity, denying his deity, denying that he was in one person, so, the Council of Chalcedon fixed the hypostatic union to say, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, united with true humanity, in one person forever without confusion, period. 
Now, we can say that very quickly, but that's 400 years of Bible study and argument to be able to state it that crisply and that clearly. But it came about because of the tension of satanic attacks against the church, denying truth here, denying truth there, and so the Holy Spirit responds. But it's kind of an indictment about us as sheep that we never learn until the wolves come in and start nipping, and then all of a sudden, oh, gee, is there a shepherd around here? And then we run, run to the Lord. Well, at least we run to the Lord for that. So, in the history of the church, no different here. In the 18th and 19th centuries, certain things happened. Okay? So, down the bottom of page 9, here's, one, here's the first thing. The function and mission of the church. And this became an issue because of the state churches. In England, it was the Anglican Church. When an organized religious group becomes dominant, it gets fat and lazy. And it always has been this way. And that's why the Puritans, named their Puritan, they came because they were trying to purify what? They were trying to purify the Anglican Church. So, the Puritans were people who reacted against a state church. They were reformed people. They just wanted a little bit more spiritual life going on. So, by the 18th century, people had gotten to the point where, hey, look, my spirituality is not related to how many thousands of dollars the building is. I mean, you can build a big cathedral and, and uh, have a whorehouse in there. That, just because you've got a big building doesn't, doesn't uh, say anything about it. And so, in this time, the issue came out, what is the church? What is the church? It's not the building, is it? It's not the state. Is it really the organization? And so, some words came out of this discussion, and I don't put these in the notes, but these are just for those of you here tonight. This, this is a vocabulary word. The invisible church and the visible church. Now, what, it, what do they mean by this? The visible church is obviously what you see. Organiza organization, clergy, people going to church on Sunday, uh, various church organizations doing various things. The invisible church, what's that? The invisible church is the church of the saved individuals wherever they may be. They may be in church, they may be out in, uh, climbing a mountain somewhere, or they may be isolated in some area that doesn't even have a church. These words are also associated with vocabulary, again, visible church is often called the local church. The invisible church is often called the universal church. By the way, you know another synonym for the word universal? Catholic. The Catholic Church. In the Apostles' Creed, when it says, I believe in the holy Catholic and apostolic church, it's not talking about Roman Catholicism. It's talking about the universal church. The Catholic Church. 
And what's interesting is the term Roman Catholic is like saying it's the local universal church because Rome is one geographical area. But this was, this was the discussion. It starts to show you that people began to, make a, make a, began to distinguish between the invisible church of the truly saved people and the organizational structures. Why was that? Because what did we say that Reformed theology had done? They had unified the church and the state, so they were very tight politically. So on page 10... The first full paragraph there begins with these new questions. New questions demanded answers. Oh, and up, the, up above that, I, I mentioned what happened in New England. You know, the sad thing is that most of us have gone to secular high school and secular grammar school. Most of us have been raised in churches that don't know anything about their own history, leave alone church history. And the result is that we haven't, haven't got a clue about the United States and the role of Christians in our, in our national history. The only thing that young people ever hear about when it comes to the Puritans is because some English teacher somewhere decided they take Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, that talks about uh, what happened in Salem, which was an oddity for the Puritans. And that's the image people walk away from high school with, is what Arthur Miller said in The Crucible. Anybody read the Puritans? No, we can't read the Puritans. I mean, good grief. One commentary by Owens on the book of Hebrews is 500 pages thick. We can't do that. I don't have enough time between TV programs to read 500 pages in the book of Hebrews. So nobody reads the Puritans, so nobody knows really what they're talking about when it comes to the Puritans. Well, the Puritans tried to create a modern counterpart of Israel. And it collapsed because Puritanism, while it was godly in many areas, had some serious theological weaknesses. And one of the things the Puritans never seemed to be able to do was to evangelize into the next generation. Partly because they believed in infant baptism. And if you believe in infant baptism, the baby somehow is going to automatically believe, so you don't have that, that clarity of leading children to the Lord. And the result was that the Puritans never reproduced themselves. That was a sad thing. And the Unitarians took over New England, and New England has, has always been rocky ground ever since. The few ministries I know of that are really Bible-centered in New England today are centered on people who have moved into New England. They're not native Yankees. That land, the lights went out. And it's too bad, but it seems historically, whenever the lights go out in a geographical area, God doesn't turn them on for centuries after that. North Africa, at one time, was the home of biblical Christianity. Today, you could count the number of Christians in North Africa on one hand. So, that's what happens, and it's sad to watch in history, watch this goes. But this led to all kinds of things. And one of the things that was growing at this time was higher criticism of the Bible. And we talked about that over the years in, in this class. Remember, higher criticism is this. It's imposing a framework of unbelief onto the scriptures and slur slurping up the scriptures into unbelief. So we now have an unbelieving story of how this book came about. That's higher criticism taught in all the universities. So here's the questions that were dominating when dispensationalism arose about the church. 
Was, was God, what was God's will for the church? Increase the political power of the visible church? Try once again to bring Old Testament Israel's culture forms into present society as the Puritans tried to do? Regroup as a community distinct from any state structure as the early church had done? What should the church do about the newly discovered, culturally diverse peoples throughout the continent? Remember, what had gone on by the 18th and 19th centuries in world history? Exploration of the continents. All of a sudden now, gee, you know, North America's got a lot of Indians over there. Are these people believers? How does God call the elect out of the American Indians? So, all of a sudden we've got to hmm, what's the church's mission to this? So these were questions that came up. Dispensational theology, last sentence, dispensational theology was a dominating force in the modern missionary movement. That is a historical fact. Modern missionary movement largely has been impelled, motivated, and guided by people who were dispensationally oriented. That's the one issue that came up. What is the role of the church? The next issue dealt with that higher criticism thing. The issue now was that the world at large had this idea that history was progressing. So here's history. And people began to study all the dates and who did what, when, how, and who discovered America, and when they discovered America, and what happened in Europe before that, and what happened to Greece before that, and what happened to Rome, and so forth and so on back in ancient times. There was a rise in the interest of history. There was also at this time an interest in geology, and the idea that the human race might be a lot older than people had previously thought. These questions came up. So, verse in the, in, the, in the next paragraph, the last one, page 10, beginning with the word unbelief, unbelief took the lead. This was the sad thing that happened by the 18th and 19th century. Unbelief took the lead in explaining historical development in terms of natural forces. This is not God's story anymore. This is economics that determines it. This is uh, geography that determines history. This is man's genius that determines history. All these things except the sovereign plan of God determining history. So if that, that's the case, and we have inside history this little thing called the Bible, then it follows to these people that the Bible has to be explained economically, geographically as a product of human genius. See what's going on here? That's the rise of higher criticism. And by the 18th and 19th centuries, the church was getting very outmaneuvered here. So that intelligentsia, even at the founding of America, even by the founding of America, you had Thomas Jefferson who decided he could study the Bible with a razor blade, cutting out the stuff he didn't like and creating his own. You had Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian. You had Thomas Paine, who was a vicious atheist. And all this at the, at the founding of our country. So this kind of stuff was going on, and, and Christianity was in trouble here. 
So a whole set of other questions came up, and that's what I deal with in paragraph, this paragraph we're about to start here. Unbelief took the lead in explaining historical development in terms of natural forces. Unbelief could do this because classical Protestantism had stimulated study of the natural world, now here's the important part of the sentence, without providing specific interpretive standards from the Bible. The authority of Scripture was a clear principle to Protestant thinkers in matters of theology, but not in other areas. As tension increased between biblical history and secular attempts at universal history, Reformed theology tried to solve the problem by extending accommodating trends found in Calvin's writings. Calvin talked about common grace. He talked about the idea you could study nature and you could, independently of the Scriptures and make sense of it. You could study history independently of the scriptures and make sense of it. But I, I pause here because I want you to see something that you, will knock you off balance spiritually if you don't grab hold of this thing. Let's learn from mistakes of our, our, the, the Christian men and women who went before us. If you grant one area out here, whether it is history, whether it is science, whether they are the arts, whatever it is, business, if you grant that the natural man can truly understand these things apart from the God of the Scriptures, you've opened up the city gates to a Trojan horse. And it will eat you up every time. And it did the church. Once people think they've got their feet and they can stand on these foundations, what foundation are they no longer standing on? The Word of God. So now, from these man-made foundations, now we start to attack the Scriptures. Because now we have a frame of reference and now we're going we're to absorb the Scriptures into that frame of reference. This is why... I personally am a presuppositional apologist of the faith. Why I believe that you start with the scriptures and then you go to science. You start with scriptures and then you go to the arts. You start with scriptures and then you go to science. You don't just blah blah about God and then autonomously develop these things. I am prepared even to defend the idea you can't teach arithmetic without the scriptures. Oh, well, math is neutral. No, it isn't. You know, when you study math, one of the things that you run into is this thing. Or you can run into anything. You know, math, what do they call us? Number for it. Irrational numbers. You know where that term came from? Irrational numbers? Because the Greeks didn't like this. You know why they didn't like it? Because you can't express, express it as an integer. It's one of these little sneaky little fraction-type decimal things. They didn't like that. And they really thought a lot about it. And we learn it in math class, you know, between 2.30 and 2.45 before the test. And everybody memorizes and burps it up on the test. And we go on. Never think about what just happened now. Never think about the fact that two or three hundred years, the Greeks debated whether these numbers even exist. What I'd love to do in a math class is, is, is point out to them and says, you know, we still don't know where those numbers exist. Oh, yes, we do. No, we don't. You know why we don't?
Think of a computer. A computer has a certain number of zeros and ones in it that it uses to express numbers, a binary number system. Does it have an infinite set of numbers? No. Look at your calculator you hold in your hand. How many decimal places does the calculator go out? 10? Maybe? 13? Okay. When you calculate, are you calculating then with irrational numbers? No, you're not. You're calculating with abbreviated numbers that fit in your calculator. Have you ever seen then the irrational numbers? No, you haven't. Well, then do they exist? Hmm, I hadn't thought about that. Well, see, this is, a, this is again an example of why in our educational system we, we always emphasize the trivia. And we have to. I mean, you know, you have to get the practical down. But there's no depth. Nobody wants to touch the big questions. And here's one of the big questions. So in church history, this was causing a problem. So they, the, the idea of what is your authority came up in the 18th and 19th century. On the next page, page 11, if you look at this paragraph that begins with if early Protestants, there I try to summarize it, and now we'll get into the dispensation per se. If early Protestants had faced the issue, by early Protestants, I mean back in the days of Luther and Calvin, if early Protestants had faced the issue of whether the church controls the canon or the canon controls the church, let me stop there. Do you know what that debate is all about? Which has higher authority? The church or the scriptures? Now, if you argue with a good, firmly convinced Roman Catholic, they'll tell you that the church. Do any of you know why they say that? What's one of the, what, what would be a Roman Catholic's argument for saying the church is supreme over the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? It came from the church, right? Leaders of the church. So if the church gave the Bible, then the church is superior to the scriptures. The fallacy of the argument is, map it over to the Old Testament. Where did the Bible come in the Old Testament? Out of Israel. Now what was higher in the Old Testament? Israel or the scriptures? It was the scriptures, wasn't it? The prophets went into David and accused the king of the nation. Jesus accused the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're wrong. How do they do that? How could they accuse the nation of wrongdoing if the nation had higher authority than the scriptures? Very simple. Because the scriptures had authority over the nation. That's interesting. During the Ashcroft hearings, I wrote about five or six senators that were on the Judiciary Committee, and I pointed out to them, not that the letter ever got read, probably, but I pointed out to them that one of the arguments they couldn't stand about Ashcroft, somewhere he had made a speech where he referred to, there's no king but Jesus. Well, they thought this was some right-wing screaming fundy that said that. And I reminded them that that actually is taken from Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, and it goes back to the time of the divine right of kings in English history. And at that point in English history, the kings were considered to be king by divine right. And the Scottish Presbyterians said, no way. The king is under the law, not above the law. 
And do you know what passage of Scripture they argued that from? 1 Samuel chapter 8. What does Samuel say when the monarchy begins in Israel? You wanted a king, O Israel, like all the nations. You are going to get a king, and you're going to regret the day that you ever centralized political power in one office called the monarchy. And so it was that they used this king, and the rallying cry of the Scottish reformers against the English divine right of kings was, there is no king but Jesus. Now, probably none of the five senators ever read English history enough to realize what was going on here. And I pointed out that all that says is that government power is limited by a higher authority. And you better be glad it is. Because if you're not, then reformers like Martin Luther King are wrong. Because in southern society, what beliefs dominated the kings? Segregation. So then on what moral basis could Martin Luther King appeal against segregation. He had to appeal to something above the state, above the rulers. In Nazi Germany, who, what was the belief of the kings that run, ran society? Kill Jews, fry them in Auschwitz. And what were the people who, like Bonhoeffer and others, who argued the Germans are wrong? And us at Nuremberg, we had a higher standard. And so it's silly to argue that that phrase, there's no king but Jesus. I pointed out in my letter to Ted Kennedy, I said, you know, every time as a good Roman Catholic, you go into church and you recite the Apostles' Creed, you're saying the same thing. Ever listen to the Apostles' Creed when you're reciting it? What does it say about Jesus? He ascended and where is he? He's at the Father's right hand. What do you think that means? There's no king but Jesus. So, it's silly, this kind of knee-jerk response by stupid people who have never read history. And then half America goes along with it. See, it behooves us as Christians to know our scriptures, at least to be able not to get sucked up into this total, abject ignorance that dominates our culture today. So, the issue then with the Roman Catholic days, in this first sentence of that paragraph, page 11, Protestants had to deal with the issue, is the scripture the authority or is the church the authority? Okay, that was the issue in the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, the later Protestants, these are the people now in the 18th and 19th, faced another issue, and that was whether natural forces of historical development explain biblical faith or whether biblical faith explained natural forces of development. See what happened? Different issue, wasn't it? And this is what led to the rise of dispensational theology. One historian calls the dispensational view of history as anti-humanist, anti-developmental, a negative parallel of secular concepts of progress. Now, in a nutshell, what is dispensationalism all about? Dispensationalism argues that human history goes through a series of steps like this. And that there are ages to history. In fact, if you've been here for over the years and Thursday nights, you've seen this, haven't you? We went from creation to the flood, did we not? That was one entire civilization back there. We went from the time of the flood to the call of Abraham. We went from Abraham up to David, on through the kingdom of Israel, and now we're, we're right at the end with the cross of Jesus Christ. Dispensationalism argues that God moves forward, but he moves forward with certain administrations. 
He has administration number one, administration number two, administration number three. He administers world history in a certain structured way in certain historical ages. And you've got to respect that. And you've got to interpret the Bible into the times in which it was written. So let's go down to the bottom of page 11 and we are going to at last finally get into some scripture tonight. The capitalized header that says structural components of dispensationalism. It could be many of them, but I'm just pointing three of them. The three components of classical dispensational theology are emphasis upon a literal interpretive approach to biblical covenants. That's number one. Number two, a doxological ultimate purpose to history. We'll explain all that. That's number two. And number three, separate identities for Israel and the church. That's the hallmark. Wherever you go, you can tell by how people handle those questions whether they're dispensationalists or not. You'll never meet a dispensationalist that doesn't go down that track. Always have those features. Paul studied, Paul Osteimer studied under Clarence Mason, uh, who was one of the early dispensationalists. Well, not early, but he was one of the guys who basically was the founder, not the founder of PCB, was he? Founder, but he he promoted uh, the Philadelphia College of the Bible. And that that has been and is a center of dispensationalism, yes. What is a dispensationalist? What is a dispensationalist? We're getting into that. Uh, it takes a while to explain that, and so that's what I'm going to do right now. What is a dispensationalist? A dispensationalist is one who believes these three things. Number one, he believes in a literal approach to the biblical covenants. I'm going to show you that tonight. We're going to spend the rest of the evening just on that one point. Number two, He believes that the ultimate purpose of history is not redemptive, it is doxological. Number three, he believes that Israel and the church are distinct entities involving two separate, distinct peoples of God with two separate identities and two separate purposes in history. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the evening on number one. A literal interpretive approach to biblical covenants. Let's go to a biblical covenant. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It's funny that dispensationalism spend more time talking about covenants than covenant theologians talk about covenants. But in, in, there, are, there are several biblical covenants that we've covered. And you remember we've gone through uh, biblical history and where we say that, remember this chart? We've gone through it. The call of Abraham. And this was 2000 B.C. This was the first Jew. He was called out. This set off exclusivity in history. This, from this point on, everybody started fussing at God about his new dispensation. See, prior to Abraham, God ran history differently. Prior to Abraham, God had a prophet here, he had a prophet here, he had a prophet in China, he had prophets in Europe, he had prophets in Africa. He had people like Melchizedek in the various people groups all over the earth. 
but the people apostatized from those prophets and it was in danger of being eradicated, the word of God from history. So God decided he'd start a new thing and beginning with Abraham is a new dispensation. Meaning that from this point on, God is going to channel revelation only through Israel, not through anybody else. And people still can't get used to that. That's why even today, oh, well, you Christians are bigots. I mean, you say you're the only way. Well, we didn't say we're the only ones. Jesus said that. So argue with him, okay? I didn't say that. Take it to Jesus. He'll give you a good argument. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, is that being nasty? It's not being nasty. If you understand why that dispensation started, it started because the previous dispensation exposed human failure. So one of the other features of dispensationalism, every one of these dispensationalists ends in a human failure. Every dispensation proves man's sin. It proves that men sin against whatever light they have. People say, well, it would be more fair. God, God raised up people in every culture. He did. And all during the time between the flood and Abraham, that was the case. And what did people do? They turned away from it. Well, I think God ought to have a special nation. Well, He did. And what happened to the special nation when the Lord Jesus Christ called it to be ready for the kingdom? They crucified Him. They sinned. So, every dispensational involves a test. That's another feature, which we won't get into. But tonight, I want to look at the literal interpretive approach to covenants. Genesis chapter 12 is the first covenant. So, we'll take number one. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Another word that you can use, if this sounds too theological, use the word contract. That's what a covenant is. Just like a business contract, a mortgage, a loan arrangement, whatever. Employment contract. The Bible is the only one, by the way, that has the only nation on earth ever made contracts with God. Actually, God only made contracts with Israel. Genesis chapter 12. Here are the big three. Verse 2 and verse 3. This is the modus operandi of history from 2000 B.C. to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And will go on, actually. It's still going on in, in, in one sense. What does God say? This is, the, this is how to understand history. Verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth be blessed. See, there's the universality in the Abrahamic covenant. Is it universal? Yeah, it is. All the nations are going to be blessed through this olive tree of Israel. Now, what has Israel contributed in world history? What you're holding in your lap. Hey, this Jewish book, folks, Gentiles didn't write this. Jews wrote it. And was Jesus a Jew? So, that's part of the blessing. Not all, because world peace will not happen in the future until Israel says yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's holding up progress and peacemaking. So, that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, if you come forward to Genesis 15, we find some more details about this covenant. Notice, this covenant is not made with the church. 
It's made with Abraham. It's made with those who come out of Abraham, Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 15, he says, verse 5, verse 6, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he trusted it for righteousness. Then it says, on down the end of the passage, we went through this back many times, many years ago. If you go down to verse 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace, talking to Abraham. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Where's here? To Palestine. They will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came when the sun had set, it was very dark, and so on. And we have the, the covenant signing. And then in verse 18, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenai, you, you check that out on a world map, by the way. That's a big area. A lot bigger than this modern state of Israel. So, so in the Abrahamic covenant, you have three things. Abraham is promised a seed, which becomes the nation Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is promised a land, and he is promised that he will be a worldwide blessing. So, there's a land promise in here with specific boundaries. Now, you can't spiritualize these things. This is not given to the church. Does the church live between the river of Egypt and the river Euphrates? Obviously not. So the only way you can get the church in here is to say, well, it's not really land. It's just kind of a word for blessing. So now see what we're doing. See, now we're getting greasy on the way we interpret this contract. And my point is the dispensation refused to get greasy when it comes to the details of the contract. contract clearly says there's real estate involved here, folks. And it's real estate for Israel, not for anybody else. That is a literal interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant. Now let's go to another covenant we didn't talk about, but if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, this amplifies provision number two in the Abrahamic covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And here is where... That's anti-Semitism. So in verse 1 of chapter 30, look what it says. So shall it be when all of these things have come upon you. Now who's the you? Who is Moses talking to? The twelve tribes. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, there's the dispersion of Israel. Remember, in 586 it occurred, and then it occurred again in 870 when Israel was uh, thrown out of the land again and, the, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again 
from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you, and so forth. Now what's that saying? It's saying that in the future, Israel will be regathered when she becomes obedient again to the God of the Bible, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that God will gather you. That's not the church. That's Israel. I will gather Israel. Israel's been the one that's been kicked out into the nations. So it's Israel that will be called back. Back to where? Back to the land. So here again, we have a literalness in these biblical covenants. Now we want to go a little bit further. Let's go to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Each one of these covenants expands on the original Abrahamic covenant. So the land covenant expands on provision number two. And now the Davidic covenant is going to expand on provision number one, the seed. This was 1000 B.C. So here's ten centuries later, after the Abrahamic covenant, we have the second Samuel 7 covenant given. And... Um, God says, He's going to bless him. He says, uh, verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. Notice He doesn't say the church. I will send a place my people Israel and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from, that, from the day that I commanded judges to be all my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, when he dies, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom." He shall be a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. And my loving kindness will not depart from him as it did from Saul. Notice verse 16, final conclusion of the Davidic covenant, where it says, And your house and your kingdom shall endure, your house and your kingdom will endure before me. How long? Forever. Now, that's what the contract says. Now, either we interpret it contractually or we get greasy and try to say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Well, yes, it does mean that. Or God's a covenant breaker. We won't have time tonight, but if you want David's own interpretation of 2 Samuel 7, uh, you might want to turn and look at Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37. Because Psalm 89, verses 19 to 37, gives you David's own ideas about what he thought 2 Samuel 7 meant. So it's clear, if you do that study, you'll see that very definitely it's literal. Well, then we come to another covenant in the Old Testament called the New Covenant. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, this happened toward the end of the nation Israel's uh, golden era when it was slowly collapsing. And it came at a very interesting time. Remember we showed this chart several times? This sort of summarizes 
uh, history from 1000 uh, BC on down to, um, to the time of the fall of the kingdom. And what we have here is the golden era of Solomon, followed David, set up the monarchy, everything was cool, the nation was going great. And then we have the problem of sanctification. People began to disobey the Lord. The kingdom got divided. The kingdoms came in. Both of them, north and south, became in decline. Going to the exile in 586, most of the nation was destroyed. The Jews never recovered, really, from this 586 thing here. And uh, we have a partial restoration in 70 years after the exile. Now, when this was all happening back in here, Davidic covenant was up here before Solomon. Down in here, about 600, 700, 800 B.C., now you have the writing prophets. And they're trying to explain to the nation why the nation's having a, going through hard times. And it's because they've departed from the Lord. And so, Jeremiah chapter 31 answers a fundamental question about the Old Testament. Here's the dilemma. If God is holy, if God is righteous, and He says that... Israel is my kingdom, and I'm righteous, and I've got to have a righteous kingdom. How do you get a sinful nation into a righteous kingdom? That's the problem. And Israel knew what the standards of righteousness were, because the Mosaic Law said what the standards were. The problem was they didn't have the power to live to that standard. The kings didn't have the power, the leaders of the people, and the people didn't have the power. So you have a refutation of both the idea of socialism and you have a refutation of the idea of fascism politically. The Bible has a lot to say politically. All political theories are really repudiated at this point. Democracy is repudiated in the scripture. And the reason is, is because man has fallen. 51% of the people can vote wrongly. 51% of the people can vote in a very perverted way. That doesn't make it right. So, by this time, there was a need for an answer of how are we going to get to this point in history if we have sinful leaders and sinful men. Well, here's Jeremiah declaring what the Lord said. Jer uh, verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant, does it say with the church? No, church didn't exist now. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, here's the answer. Here is why Israel can one day have and receive the kingdom of God. And with that fact, you'll have worldwide peace. It will come because I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now people always like to say, oh, well, that's being fulfilled in the church today. We'll just keep reading the next verse. What does the next verse say? Verse 34, They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Is that true today? 
saying there's going to be no need for evangelism in the Millennial Kingdom. Because everybody knows the Lord. At least in Israel, everybody knows the Lord. Well now, excuse me, but how do you get that to apply to the church? So, once again, we see why dispensationalists, to make the first point, what, what characterizes a dispensationalist? A literal interpretation of the biblical covenants. They were made to Israel, and you have to take them literally. Now, on page 12, to sum up, there's, there's some language issues here. If you look at the italicized area on that first, second paragraph, two vital implications for the science of interpretation. That's called hermeneutics. First, the meaning of contract, and just think about it, this is not a terribly difficult theological concept. If you've ever signed a mortgage note, if you've ever bought an automobile and signed a loan agreement, if you've ever gone to your boss and signed an employment contract, you know this intuitively. This is easily understood. First point. If you have contracts, the contract terminology must be conservative for the duration of the contract, doesn't it? How else are you going to tell whether the contract's full or not? Something has to have the meaning when you write it that it has when the contract's fulfilled. It would be chaos in the business world if this weren't true. Number two, only literal meanings can be verified or falsified against enforcement criteria. How do you determine whether the person's breached the contract or not if you don't have literal meanings for the contractual terms? Two key figures in the rise and spread of dispensational theology, John Nelson Darby in the 1800s and C.I. Schofield in the 1900s, both interesting in their biographies, both studied law in their early years. So they certainly were aware of the hermeneutics of contract law. If you want to think of it this way, imagine uh, in the next paragraph, I, I, some that I will summarize here tonight, right here. Uh, look at that next paragraph. Here's an example why I mean literal interpretation of contracts. These implications are so obvious, it is hard to understand how biblical interpreters could have overlooked them for centuries. Imagine an insurance company telling Mr. Jones and his surviving family after a tornado destroyed his house that the policy covered his home, the real meaning of which was his family, not the building. Everyone would agree that changing the meaning of the original wording from its literal meaning to a metaphorical one amounts to contract fraud. And yet theologians do this again and again with these Old Testament con contracts. And dispensationalists are people that refuse to do that. We're the hard noses. We interpret this as contractual language that doesn't change. If it's made to Israel, it's made to Israel. If it's made about land boundaries, it means land boundaries. A real radical thought here. But this is the essence of dis the dispensationalist position. Last time, you remember, we went into this, so I don't have to do that again on page 13, um, where I went into the fulfillment idea. Remember, I, I went through that last time. I showed you how Jeremiah 31 is not a fulfillment in, in Matthew 2 of a contractual terminology. 
I also, in the footnote 14, give you another example, Hosea chapter 11, compared with Matthew chapter 2. And finally, down at the bottom of page 13, summarizing the whole thing. Dispensational theology, instead of starting with the New Testament and trying to work backward to the Old Testament, starts with the Old Testament and works forward. If a biblical covenant is not fulfilled in the New Testament, then it speaks to events yet future. The dispensational approach insists upon the conservative nature of covenant terms throughout historical time. And in this manner, it preserves a straightforward, objective method of verifying fulfillment of covenant promises. So that's, that's what a dispensation is all about. And you'll see that if you remember when we were discussing Reformation theology, they're worried about this abstract covenant and they start with the New Testament and they're trying to argue that well, every time you see the word fulfill, that must mean it's all fulfilled in the New Testament. It's all fulfilled. Well, if that's fulfilled, then we've got to change the meaning of the Old Testament because we don't have anybody in the land. And there's the difference. And that's why as we go forward, next week we'll finish this up and we'll go forward into Pentecost. And when we get to Pentecost, we're going to have a problem here. Because Pentecost is a very difficult event to interpret correctly. Lots of things are going on in Pentecost involving both church and Israel. And it's, it can be very confusing. So we don't want to get into that minefield if we don't have this preparation. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have provided for us your story of history and our personal lives in all the little details each day in our personal lives have meaning because the whole of history has meaning. And we can sit here tonight and enjoy listening to your story and reading your story as the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts at our own level of understanding. And we thank you that you take us by the hand and teach us about how you have structured history, where history is going, and what you're doing. We pray that your Holy Spirit would energize us to worship you and thank you for how you bless all mankind and have blessed. And may we receive that blessing through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, we'll have some Q&A if you like uh, for a few, time, a few minutes. Yeah. That's fine, Debbie. I say, if you, if you weren't here, we wouldn't have a Q&A. <laughs> um, with, uh, with the new covenant, uh, was there some beginning of that mm-hmm. at the time of Christ? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The question was, you know, from communion, he said, this is the new covenant, which is my blood. Well, doesn't that show the new covenant started? Oh, yes, it did. Um, the issue, though, is look at the content of the new covenant and ask yourself, is it currently being fulfilled? And if it's not, why isn't it? And if it's not being fulfilled to Israel, how come in the communion the Lord Jesus Christ says, this is the blood of the new covenant? And on what basis does the church unite in here? That's the background. We're going to move into that when we get into the church in Israel thing. But that's why I'm covering this, because you can't just drive at 60 miles an hour in the New Testament and say, oh, look, see, the Lord Jesus said New Covenant, and we're in the New Covenant, and all the rest of it. Well, 
you read the New Covenant. Where are we in that? Well, we're somehow connected to it because the Lord Jesus obviously is connecting us to it. And it turns out, so that we don't die of suspense, is that the church benefits from these covenants because of her union with Christ. It's our union with Christ because he's in the covenant. He's of the house of Israel. So we share in benefits, some of them, not the land. We share in some of those benefits because of our union with Christ and our identification with him. And and that gets to be, now we're starting to talk about what is the church. But see, what we're not doing is we're not replacing Israel with the church here. The church takes on a new identity, radically different, by the way, than Israel. Whereas in Israel, you have a national election. By that, I mean all these covenants foresee a nation out there that will exist forever and ever and ever. Now, there are also prophecies of Gentile nations, but the point is that it's all nations, political and sociological units of people. Now, you come to the church... And the sociological identity of people drops out. What is the church? Those who personally believe in Christ. The church is neither Gentile nor Jew. The church is made up of those who are individually elect, who come to Christ. And it has this uh, identity not having any in it who are truly unbelievers. The church is made up, the body of Christ is made up of those who have personally trusted in Jesus Christ. We would say in the terms of the vocabulary tonight, when you talk that way, when we talk that way, we're talking about what? The invisible church, the universal church. And so that universal church is not what's in the Old Testament. These things happen to the universal church and the church is created, as we'll see in Pentecost, with things that never were prophesied. That's the strange thing. A lot of stuff that was prophesied to the nation of Israel doesn't happen to the church. And then things are happening to the church that weren't prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul says that the church is a mystery. It wasn't made known in the Old Testament. So he distinguishes it. Israel was known in the Old Testament. Gentiles were known in the Old Testament. But Paul says the church wasn't. The church is a mystery. Never revealed before. So, if that's so, then you see, that's what, dispensa- that's what caught the dispensationalist's attention when they were struggling with, what is the church in the middle of all these state churches? They began to say, wait a minute, what is the church? And that led to missions, that led to evangelism, that led to all kinds of things that we take for granted. We never realize, of course, where all this stuff came from. And what I'm trying to show you is, there were a lot of people that argued here for centuries about these questions. This just didn't happen. So when you see a missionary get up and you see these other things happening, maybe now as you get into the background you'll realize, wow, uh, you didn't see missionaries come for missionary conferences in 1400. This is relatively a new phenomenon. How come? What's happened here? So anyway, that's, that's the, the answer is yes, we do benefit, but through Christ. Any other questions? Yeah. 
Yeah, the question is about, is the indwelling of the future Israel like the indwelling of the church? Well, yes and no. Um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church takes on aspects not shared by Israel. And the indwelling there, you're talking about in the uh, New Covenant, uh, is an indwelling that substantiates law that we would say is political as well as personal. Because remember the Mosaic Law Code did not make a distinguishment between your personal devotional life and your public life. It did not make a distinguishment between your devotional life and, and uh, economics. Uh, so that when the Holy Spirit indwells the future Israel, all of whom are redeemed, that Holy Spirit's indwelling will substantiate a very wide and detailed national law code that is not like what the Holy Spirit indwelling does in the age of the church simply because we're not a nation it doesn't call it doesn't reveal to us health codes uh, doesn't reveal to us economic uh, how long loan agreements are to be made um, doesn't reveal to us uh, tax structures uh, all that was associated with that new covenant in the Old Testament. So, yes, they, they, it, it's very difficult to, it's, to go into details about what the future Israel is because all we've got is prophetic scripture to do it, to, to look at. But we can certainly um, think about the tremendous assets that we are given as believers. It's encouraging. Now, I hope you won't get discouraged in all this. There's an encouraging note in all this because as we get deeper into the New Testament, we'll see that there's some exciting things that are true of the church that never were true of the Old Testament saints. And that we actually have operating assets that David himself never had. And uh, it's kind of, it's kind of makes us embarrassed and somewhat ashamed that we live in such a low level spiritually when the Lord has blessed us with so many spiritual blessings and blessed, the, blessed our socks off with all kinds of stuff. And, and the Old Testament saints, geez, you know, they would have really appreciated some of the stuff that we take for granted. I mean, think about it. Uh, do we have to go through a priest? Do we have to go to the temple? Do we have to go give a sacrifice? They had to. That's part of godly Christian life in the Old Testament. That wasn't unsaid. That wasn't flesh. That was spirit. The spirit told them to go do that, and and they would they'd be out of fellowship if they didn't do that. They had to do and participate in temple ritual. That was part of the deal. And we don't. We go directly to the Lord, and so we become geographically independent. We don't have to live in a land somewhere. We can be in jail and have fellowship. So. Uh, there's some power and some uh, really neat uh, to contrast between the church and Israel. So those are the things that we, we want to, once our perspective is enlarged here, to see that, wow, we have to think about the blessings that are unique. Unique is the word. Blessings unique to the church age. And when you start asking those questions, you begin to come across things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which puts us in union with Christ. What does in union with Christ mean? What does indwelling mean? 
indwelling Holy Spirit, indwelling Christ. Um, what does it mean to have Jesus Christ make intercession for us? Didn't make intercession like that in the Old Testament. What's that mean? So there's a lot of stuff going on in the New Testament. Any other questions? Yes? So, I didn't understand what you were saying about Israel in, in the future, and maybe there's not enough to go on, but are they going to have to fulfill the same... Are they going to be empowered to fulfill the law? That's what Jeremiah says. Okay. So they're going to be keeping the... Well, of course, we're not, not going to be eating the flesh, so they're not going to have to be worried about that. Well, sure they will. They're natural bodies. This is during the Millennial Kingdom here we're talking about. Right, where, where it's restored to the yeah. blood era. Yeah. Well, so they, they don't have to worry about keeping the, the food laws, right? Well, maybe they will. I don't know, because I don't know what the law code's going to be like then. I don't know how God's gonna, going to administer the law code in the Millennial Kingdom. Because that will be another administration. Yeah. Ezekiel tells us a lot about it. If you want to see, you know, you really want to get stimulated to think this through, is try reading the book of Ezekiel. Holy mackerel. You start reading the book of Ezekiel, and you, you know what it's talking about? It's talking about when Jesus Christ comes back, the terrain around Jerusalem is going to change. And that there's going to be a temple in the Millennial Kingdom on the top of this mountain in Jerusalem, that all nations will go to. It will be like kind of a world center. And it will be dedicated Jehovah God of Israel. And all the nations shall give tribute. And it's talking about how many, how many miles wide it is, how they raise food, where the water comes from. It's all in the book of Ezekiel. So much of it's in the book of Ezekiel that even in Israel today, the super-Orthodox Jews are reading Ezekiel so they can prepare for the priesthood to come. That's how literal they take it. In fact, somebody sent me today uh, an interesting study by some Jews where they're trying to trace chromosomes through Jews with the name Kohen. And see, you have a Jewish friend and his name is Levi or Levite or Kohen is the Hebrew word for priest. Uh, you'll notice that Jews with those names are the only Jews that have a direct link to a tribe. Because all the other tribes are kind of mishmashed together. God knows them. But the Jewish tribe is identified by the male gene. So this study goes into the, the Y or XY chromosome, and they're trying to study what is characteristic of all Jews that have Kohen as a name. And they're discovering, by the way, that there is a unity in this, that these, people, these Jews really do have a genetically identifiable uh, surviving uh, signature. And so here we go now, see? Now you're going to just grease and slop through this and say, well, that's just symbolic, you know, it doesn't count. Well, the genes is there. Why is it, why, in, in, in the book of Numbers, the Levites are promised their own little covenant, saying, because you people bless me, I'll bless you, and you're going to survive through all history with a special identity. And to this day, after all the centuries of persecution, destruction, chaos, and upheaval, and genocide, the one tribe of Israel that still is identified is Cohen Levi. And what is their function ultimately in this kingdom to come? They're going to be the priests. 
they're going to administer the temple. So their physical unity and their identity is going to be preserved. The Bible says so. See, it gets back to contract language. You can't slip and slide around this stuff. This is hard, literal stuff. So that's the lesson tonight. Dispensationalism basically stresses the looking at these contracts as though they're real contracts that last and have integrity. Next week we'll go on to the purpose of history and we'll finish up with the Church-Israel distinction. And then we'll be all set after that to move into Pentecost and start back to our sequence of events again. Okay?